Like, what are you, politically correct? No, actually, I've lost my gills and my twitching primordial tail, and I'm trying to get up the road. Yeah. Like, come with me. Come evolve. Come on. We've got science and fun. It's great. And, and your friends are like, dude, what's with you? Like, what got into you? Like, what got into me? A desire to move on. That's Henry Rollins. I'm Michael Sokol, and this is Same Wavelength, a platform where I talk with artists and performers about the relationship between their creative work and our current political moment. Same Wavelength is a place where artists speak their truths. As I said, my name is Michael Sokol. Hello, Michael Sokol. Hey, Michael. Good morning, Michael. Hi, Michael. I'm a former radio DJ who wanted to start a platform where I could have open conversations with creative folks discussing social and political issues and talk with them about how they choose to use their platforms during these confusing and divisive times. Henry Rollins is my guest on this episode, episode four of Same Wavelength. Henry Rollins is a punk rock pioneer. He's a prolific spoken word performer, an actor, author, photographer, activist, and DJ. He was the lead singer of the seminal punk rock band Black Flag in the 80s and then led the Rollins Band until the mid-2000s. Henry hosts a weekly radio show on the L.A. station KCRW. He was a regular columnist for the L.A. Weekly for seven years. Henry's travel slideshow, which he tours around the country, is a showcase of photographs that he's taken all over the world, along with his stories and commentary about his traveling. I talked with Henry over the phone last spring, and we talk about how punk rock informed his political views, why he wasn't surprised by the rise of Trump, And we talk about how traveling and listening to music from around the world are great ways to combat bigotry and ignorance. Anything that's referenced throughout the conversation, you can find all of that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. And those are all there because I hope this podcast can be for you like it is for me, a place of discovery. Before we get to the conversation with Henry, I do want to say that if you, like me, are really concerned about the inhumane and cruel treatment of children and families happening right now at our southern border. Uh, I've put a list of resources to check out in the show notes for this episode on the podcast website, samewavelengthpodcast.com. There's a growing list of organizations doing really important work with immigrant families. And, um, you know, now's a good time to read about some of those organizations and figure out, you know, how to maybe get involved in a way that makes the most sense for you. Here's my conversation with Henry Rollins on Same Wavelength. And thank you so much for listening. This is Henry. Hello, Henry Rollins. How are you, Ben? I'm good. Thank you so much for uh, taking some time to talk to me today. Not a problem. So, Henry, I'll, I mean, I'll start by asking you if there's anything, either musically or politically, uh, that you, you know, have on your mind right now that you want to kind of start the conversation with. I'd love to to begin there if there is anything. No, I mean, uh, I'm just, I'm kind of open. It's an interesting uh, time in the world. Yeah. America's really in some, uh, not completely, but somewhat uncharted territory. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll ask you, do do you feel like right now we're living at a time when music and art are being called into action like they have been in in our certain points in our our history? No. Uh, I mean, I've never been one who held the idea that music ever really changed anything, never stopped a war. I mean, if music could stop a war, Bob Marley and Bob Dylan would have stopped them all, well, all the ones in my lifetime. Yeah. Because those songs, I mean, you know, if a war is going to stop because of a song, they wrote them already. And wars still go on because there's just too much money to be made and bigger money than, than you and I can uh, <laughs> yeah. stop. Yeah, for sure. And so I do think art can gather people. I just don't think it, it doesn't get a president impeached. It didn't stop the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't stop the Vietnam War. Well, maybe those aren't the standards we need to hold art to. I mean, those are pretty, maybe that's totally unrealistic to expect, you know, a song uh, or a painting. Here's my great hope with, with you know, uh, your Rage Against the Machines and your, yeah. your Tom Morellos. I mean, like, when he talks, thankfully, a lot of people listen. And I think because of Tom, a lot of young people went, I'm going to vote. And Public Enemy, and Chuck D. Uh, and I, I, I think people like that can... But that's a, 
between songs, he said something that really reached me. Mm, yeah. But we're talking, you know, person by person. Yeah, small scale. And, yeah, because I, I think people have personal revolutions. Mm. But as far as, like, huge change, I think, it, at least in America, it seems to come with people being fed up. It, it's when they finally go, okay, enough. And what I've noticed is Americans are really good at taking it just really... You can feed them bad food. You can say utterly unbelievable things to them, like a president who just lies to their face, and they'll go, nope, that's my guy. Yeah. And Americans will just take this amazing country with really appalling health care and, like, no real defensible reason why it can't be better. You know, an amazing country with this really embarrassing public school education system that... Uh, people want to make even worse and more elitist and americans will def- so many will defend this and those who can't defend it can push against it but a, a huge margin of the electorate doesn't really they're not informed to weigh in on either side of that argument that dumbing down of the electorate that you just referred to i mean that's been building for a while, right? Since Reagan, I think, since Reagan to now. Yeah. I think Reagan put into play the, the start of the, the purposeful dumbing down of America. And it took 30-some years to come back and bite you. And you were too young to vote that time around. I mean, I, I was barely old enough to vote in those days. Yeah. And yeah, so, I, was, I was born in 88, so I'm... There you go. Yeah. You know, humans are cyclical. And so the whole thing is we're back around again. And, you know, we're living in the age of inevitability in that this is what you get when you purposefully dumb down the electorate. I mean, if your main export items to the world are, are ordinance and ordinance delivery systems, and one your main money makers in America are in, you know, inside the country are incarceration and drugs, you know, the pharmaceutical industrial complex, the, the military industrial complex, and the prison industrial complex, then an educated electorate is not what you want because it will say no to wars. Yeah. It will be seeking to open schools and empty prisons and get people on better health care so there's less pill-popping. And that just gets in the way of the big money. Sure. And so this might be new to you, but it's not that new to me. So you really did see this all kind of coming at us from afar. Well, yeah. I mean, as an older guy older than you, where you or one of your peers or someone of your age group might go, Trump, like, how the hell did that happen? Where an old geezer like me would say, well, Trump was eventual. Because, you know, I, I remember Thatcher and Reagan. I was in the punk rock world, and I was very aware of all of that. It was quite unpleasant. Yeah. And, and, you know, I remember watching Reagan speak. And I was like 20, you know, three, whatever, you know, early 20s. And when he said, you can do what you I'm like, there's so many millions of Americans who are watching this going, you are not talking to me. I don't have a president. And so what you have is a fake populist, Reagan, and now you have another fake populist. Both are actors. Hmm. I mean, so much of this is familiar to me. The, the beat down on gay people, uh, the demonizing uh, of non-white people. Uh, the, the hatred towards uh, immigrant people. You know, if, if you were to throw out all these, quote, illegal people from our country, go ahead. Well, don't. But, but, but um, go ahead and watch America stop working in about four hours. I mean, you, you want a $6 head of lettuce? Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll see how you rock a $3 avocado. <laughs> I mean, these, these people, as they're called, are people I'm so happy to share a country with. I feel so lucky. You know, I live in Los Angeles. Are you kidding? Yeah. I mean, it's, if you don't, all you have to do is walk around with your eyes closed not to, to really see the city and the people you're living with. And so here we are again. For me, it's at least the second time with all of this. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, for me, this is definitely a time and a moment of political awakening for me. Uh, you know, it, it sort of, it's a convergence of both where I'm at in my life and also where we are in this country. It's kind of a perfect storm of I'm just extremely hungry for information and just having these kinds of conversations, which is it's both exciting and, you know, also 
frustrating and depressing at the same time. But let your frustration and, and your, your anger and all of that, if that's energy. Yeah. You know, your curiosity. You started a podcast. See all the good all this anger has brought you? I mean, instead of drinking and punching a hole in a wall, <laughs> right. you're asking questions. And what about the 18-year-old version of you or the 17-year-old version of you? Yeah. What if you, the 30-some version of you, could get the 17-year-old and say, hey, listen to this podcast, or I'm going to drive you down to the place where you're going to register to vote on your 18th birthday. It's going to take seven minutes. You know, yeah. as, as always, Chuck D says, uh, each one, teach one. And, and, and that's, that's how you, you turn things around, is I'm fed up, or I'm working at this place every three Sundays for three hours, you know, serving lunch to homeless people, or doing something where I am seeing something happen. Every city in this country needs that. And I think that has like, you know, the, it's, you're, you're a snowflake on the side of the mountain, but you know, you're part of this snowball that's rolling down the hill and getting bigger. And I think that's how you can make change. Do you feel like um, in the last couple of years, do you feel like there is a trend in the right direction as far as outreach from, from humans in this country? Yeah, I, I think Trump, uh, Trump is doing a lot of good unintentional yeah, inadvertently yeah and you know trump is proving that you you're really on your own but it doesn't have to be a bad thing like all these all these kids who marched after the high school shooting man are you kidding yeah this whole new generation of people all pissed off and headstrong i love it at least one of them you're gonna see again emma gonzalez I, yeah you know, there's a, that's a that's a member of congress waiting <laughs> to happen yeah i hope so boy if she stays with it She's got the poise. She's motivated, and I think she'll do the right thing. Yeah, and that—that's what's going to make America better. People like her getting traction. Yeah, and because you have a lot of young people, people like you, who are seeing this country, they're not not aware. They're they're extremely aware, and they want you know they're not homophobic like their grandfather. They're not racist like their uncle. They're not at all, and they see these older politicians or maybe the the uncle at Thanksgiving who just says this stuff where they're like, wow, no. Yeah. And they want things to change. And this is why I think why you see your right-wing types kicking and screaming so loudly, because there are a lot of things. Stupid is not one of them. They see that their way is coming to an end. Like, it's, it's over. Because their, their grandkids are just, you're not going to get them to drink the Kool-Aid of misogyny and homophobia and racism. They're just not going to do it because they got too much music by a rap guy in their phone and half their friends are gay. And the, the queen of the prom at high school was this guy, you know, or, or there's a, a transgender person at their workplace. They're just, they're not scared of any of this stuff. They're not alienated by it and they're going to vote and live accordingly. Totally. And so I think it's an amazing time to be awake in America and the inverse of this, like coming out of the other side of it could be pretty amazing and it's only it will be as amazing as you want to make it yeah definitely it's kind of the weird silver lining of this administration that i think obviously you know i think we you and i can probably both agree that hillary clinton would have been a much better president um but i don't know that we would have been having these conversations under I, hillary I can't clinton. agree more i mean now that all these knucklehead you know tiki torch blood and soil people are out on the streets now that they no longer hide because they have an advocate in the white house now you can really see the numbers and the statistics. You can really see what you're up against. These people used to hide. Right. Now that they have a, a green light president, they're out in the open. And so the crap has hit the proverbial fan. Okay, it's about time, because we really need to get to work and get things moving. And I do think he has started some conversations yeah, and you know, bringing things like racism and bigotry right to the surface. Well, they need votes. Yeah, that's the only people who are voting for them are the very old and set in their ways, like my father, who's mm -hmm. also a, a fantastic racist. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the Fox News people who are you know gently falling away. You know, they're collapsing in their chairs, and, and people who don't read or don't want to know, or you know, the, the the people Trump really connected with day after day on the campaign trail was angry people, you know, and they're pissed, and they should be angry. Their yeah. country you know, has lied to them over and over. Their country can't keep them out of wars. Their government shows inactivity and duplicity, and 
non-support. Like, you vote for this bastard, he gets to D.C., and all of a sudden he doesn't show up for town halls anymore. Like, who, dude, where are you? You're my, you're my guy in there, and you're not serving me. You're serving yourself, and you only come back three months before election time to scare me, and, but you keep screwing me. And so Trump figured that out. And when Trump says, you know, I speak for the forgotten American, there's a lot of people going, well, that's me. Where they, they feel, they look at Democrats, and they, just, they see these elitists. They look at Nancy Pelosi and go, like, lady, you don't even know what it's like a minute of my life. Where Trump doesn't either. <laughs> right. But he sold it better. And so I think he capitalized on the great anger in this country. And I think that anger is basically from the original sin of slavery and classism. Yeah. It's really tricky because America's never recovered from slavery. Totally. I mean, we just put Jim Crow into the infrastructure after, you know, 1865. Totally. It, it, and it became like what you saw in South Africa from decades ago, where you know, apartheid was in the paperwork, like an African person in South Africa, cannot buy land. Yeah. I mean, you're never going to get anywhere. It's right here in the rule book. And so you had a lot of angry people in 1865. Mm. I mean, you screw white people like this, they're like, they won't have it, by golly. And they became presidents and senators and mayors and Mm -hmm. governors. And so they took their grievances to the lawmakers, who were also in on it. And you got Jim Crow and... Mm. Now you just have minimum wage. Right, and, right. And we now use the criminal justice system as a way to disguise our racism. We don't call it racism, even though it, they are... Well, you call it the law. You call it the law, exactly. While so you, you make the path to incarceration wider and slipperier, where, you know, it's like slipping on a banana peel. Whoops, you're in the system. But he's 16. Yep, he's in the system. We, he had marijuana. Where'd you bust him? In the hallway of school. Yeah. You're putting cops in schools? Yeah. All those young bodies, we got to get their asses in a prison cell. Yep. We just built a new one. What, do you want it to sit empty? Have you read, um, do you know Michelle Alexander? Do you know that author? Yeah, I've yeah. seen her speak. Oh, amazing. Yeah, uh, her, her, her book, The New Jim Crow. Yeah, well, I went to go watch the lecture tour. So cool. And um, that book blew my mind. Oh, man, yeah, it was. it's super eye-opening. Yeah, and so that's where we're at in a time of great potential. But your U.S. government has gone into the dysfunction that it was heading towards at least since at least since 1865 and and here we are so we're in the this age of eventualities like how else did you think it was going to turn out totally what was for you henry what was kind of the moment in your life of of political awakening like when did the light bulb kind of go on for you cuz i assume there was there was a time when you kind of had a well, shift it went on a few times but i didn't know it yeah. I was raised in a very political household. My mom worked her entire adult career in the in government. Like I, I come from Washington D.C. Yeah. I was like raised up in it. To the left of my mom is Joan Baez in a wall, <laughs> and to the right of my father is, is uh, Hannity and a wall. <laughs> and and so they got divorced. You know that's you know I, I can't understand how they ever got together. Um, and so. Two days a week, I'd be with my dad, who you know hated minorities and yelled at at Asian men from his car in traffic. It was terrifying. Wow! Whenever I heard, whenever he say "roll down your window," I'm like, "Oh, here it comes." He'd have to like yell at somebody. Wow! Like, we're we're gonna get killed. Anyway, it was like five days with my mom and Bob Dylan records, and so <laughs> my first political awakening was I think third grade, where. You were required to buy like five one cent stamps every week and put them into the stamp book you had. And by the end, you're going to have like a $10 book of stamps and you're going to buy a savings bond with that. And that's going to be your first little savings thing. And my mom gave me like a dollar and I bought all the stamps at once. Mm. And I was in line to buy stamps with all my fellow black students. I went to a public school up the street from where I lived, which was a white neighborhood, and all my fellow students were bussed in from a different neighborhood. And these kids are holding pennies, and they're buying one stamp, three stamps, and I just bought kind of the whole lot at once. And everyone just stared at me, because by comparison, 
even though it's like middle class. I was the rich kid who just, you know, mom took care of this whole stamp thing. And so that's how I became aware of whiteness. I was aware of the otherness to black of being white. And to be a white kid in D.C., we understood what whiteness meant at a very early age. Like your neighborhood's different than their neighborhood. It's not close to your neighborhood. And that's when I realized my ride through America is probably going to be very different than the ride my fellow nine-year-olds are going to have. You had that, you had that thought when you were in third grade? Yeah. Wow. And I, I remember at the end of third grade, we're all getting our grades read to us. And to me, in those days, school was pretty easy because my mom was teaching me how to read like on the weekends. I, I loved reading. And so public school education in those days, it was for me real easy because by third grade, we're still reading this or that. And I'm reading Dickens out loud to my mom. I mean, we were reading Great Expectations out loud to each other. And I didn't always understand it, but I could read the words. Wow. And so I cut through early school, well, at least first, second, and third grade, like a hot knife through butter. I wasn't a great student, but in, the, in, in that school I was. And so I got through third grade, and the girl next to me, um, I'm forgetting her name, Tawana, um, she got held back, and they said, okay, Tawana, you're going to be back in third grade next year. And, like, at least five kids in that class didn't make it through third grade. They're like, okay, Cedric, you're coming back next year. And the expressions on their faces didn't change. And I'll never forget that. And to see the non-reaction, it said to me, oh, this is what they're used to. You know, my fellow class, these kids who failed. I mean, this, there must be some aspect of their life where something like this is the norm. Yeah. And I didn't know how to articulate it as a, as a you know, a nine-year-old. But something clicked and went, oh, my life is different. Did you perceive it being a, a race thing at that time or, or not quite? No, I just saw a rich-poor thing. Um, and, you know, my parents weren't rich. I mean, my, you know, I, I never missed a meal in my, in my life in my underwear where it was always blindingly white and from Sears and Roebuck. But, <laughs> you know, it was just a, you know, small apartment you know, the VW Fastback. I mean, it was a very uneventful childhood on that level. But compared to these kids who were getting bussed in, and so that was kind of the early awakening, but I didn't see it as political until I was a young adult. And then I realized everything in this country is political. I mean, punk rock plus Reagan, and that's when I realized, oh, every thing that happens in this country is political. Everything. And every American is political. You, you might not know it or think it or think you're above it. You, you can't be. Because the fact that you can read is political. The, the fact that you live where you live is political. I mean, it's just everything in this country is political. Totally. Yeah. My, my access to going to the dentist, that's political. Yes. I mean, to be an American... You kind of can't escape politics. And, and, and why? Because it's all tied to money, and it's all tied to 1861 to 1865, the Civil War, like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the kind of explosion of the original sin, which basically detonated slavery. And the, the shrapnel we're still being wounded from to this day. It basically went from, you know, a thing to a parts per million aerosol where it permeated American culture to such a degree, people who aren't necessarily racist say racist things all the time. Like when your white friend says, yeah, I was hanging out with these two brothers. Oh, the two brothers? Like, who's their mother? Oh, no, 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 two black guys. Dude, you, you, you yeah, shouldn't you talk that, that way. <laughs> yeah. Talk what way? Two brothers? Like, what do you mean? That, that's really not, that's just, you're not thinking straight. Right, and it's just so baked into our, our lexicon. Right. And our, yeah. Are you politically correct? No, actually. I've lost my gills and my twitching primordial tail, and I'm trying to get up the road. Yeah. Like, come with me. Come evolve. Come on. We've got science and fun. It's great. And, and the, your friends are like, dude, what's with you? Like, what got into you? Like, what got into me? A desire to move on. Yeah. And your friend means no harm. 
and and you really got to take those moments and not let them slip. You got to call them on it, even if it's the end of the friendship. Like what you know, you're an asshole now. Okay, okay, but just don't forget this conversation. And my door's always open in case you want to come back over. Because mm. I know that if I don't, I'm condoning it. Totally. One of the things I really admire and respect about you is your ability to engage with your privilege as a white man. Um, it's something that I'm very actively trying to figure out the most productive and respectful ways for me to be doing that. Yeah, it's a yeah. thing that once you're aware of it, it becomes almost immediately unwieldy. Yeah. Like, all the times I got hassled by the cops when I was in Black Flag, and it was pretty constant, I knew that he's not going to hit me with a nightclub, a Billy club, because I knew my whiteness would get me out of this. I just knew it. And, you know, I've been very successful, and I put that in quotation marks. And, you know, I earned the money in my bank account, but I am privileged, because a, a lot of doors in America open for me white, heterosexual, literate male. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, I'm kind of like at the, at the 70th yard line already. Yep. First <laughs> Me down. too, yeah. I mean, I didn't, there's so many beatings that I didn't get. There's so many beatings that Bukowski writes so eloquently about that I have no idea what they feel like because I, I never had to show up for them. Yeah. Where if you're a black guy driving and you get pulled over, I hope you don't get shot because that's a real thing. And knowing that it's not for any good reason, it's because of cowardice. It's because of America's original sin. Totally. And so I think to be conscientious and white in this country, it's more of a high caloric intellectual burn than one might think. And if you're aware of it, and I don't waste time being guilty. I mean, what good does that do anybody? I, I, I can't help that I'm left-handed and white. I mean, that's just how it is. But you don't have to be a dick about it, and you don't have to wave it around. When you were playing with Black Flag, I mean, you mentioned that you were thinking about some of this stuff and aware of it, um, but like how much of it was, in, how much were you thinking about it at the time and how was it, was it impacting your output as an artist and were you, you know, was this stuff that you were actively, you know, engaging with? On my own, yeah, yeah. but not really in the Black Flag ethos. Yeah. We were, uh, everything we wrote about and, and existed in was at arm's length. How Why so? do we write songs about cops? Because cops hassled us. Why do we write songs about women? Because we wanted to be with them. Why do we write angry songs? Because we were angry. Yeah. And so that's where we were. I mean, that was the, the, the pit in which we toiled. And so we weren't all that much on the worldview because we were so enmeshed in there's a plainclothes cop outside our van. I mean, or we're getting pulled over again today. And so we wrote about what we could slap at. Mm-hmm. And the songs and touring was a survival. And as I've said many times, that they weren't tours, they were wars. And those weren't songs, they were battle hymns. As you were touring with Black Flag, was your, <clears throat> I mean, was your consciousness expanding pretty quickly? I mean, you were with just everything that was kind of getting thrown at you, both figuratively and literally? Seeing the real America, yeah. that, that's what mainly my turn on. Have you ever read Ginsburg's poem, Howl? Yeah. Which is an epic. It's yeah. one of the greatest moments in American literature. Yeah. I want to interrupt quickly just to give a little context. Howl was written by Allen Ginsberg in the mid-50s, and it touches on a lot of themes, but it's a critique of the conforming society that Ginsburg was watching unfold. And it's his firsthand account of him witnessing his friends, poets, musicians, activists, being pushed to the margins and cast away and rejected by society. I was living that poem. Mm. And I, I only read it as a 23-year-old and went, oh, I should have read this when I was 16. <laughs> right. And, you know, everyone, I was probably the only one at our shows who hadn't read it. I mean, you know, that's, I was, I'm late to the game on so many things. But I read that one, oh, yeah, right. Because at that time, you know, there's so much deep heroin in L.A., your friends were either becoming addicts or overdosing, and you'd leave on these epic tours and come back, and there's no talking drum or internet, so you'd come back to your, you know, your great shock and sorrow, you'd find out like two people you knew had died while you were gone for three months, because, you know, you're not going to find out any other way, so you'd go to the local place and get the gossip, and 
oh, dude, this guy checked out. And you're like, what? How old is he? 19? We're too young to be dropping like flies around here. And then you start to conclude that it has to be the cops who are letting all this dope come in by the duffel bag into L.A. And then you, you know, you learn later the, about a thing called COINTELPRO. Right. And you're like, oh, we've been here before. My first time, but we've been here before. Another quick interjection. COINTELPRO stands for Counterintelligence Program. And from the mid-50s throughout the 60s, COINTELPRO was a series of covert projects conducted by the FBI designed to surveil, infiltrate, and disrupt political organizations that the FBI deemed subversive. Groups and individuals that were targeted by the FBI included feminist organizations, the Communist Party, anti-Vietnam War organizers, environmentalist organizations, and activists of the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power Movement, including the Black Panthers. The linguist, historian, and cognitive scientist Noam Chomsky calls COINTELPRO, quote, a national program of dismantling the left, and also, quote, a massive government criminal operation directed against the population that targeted critical thought and action. And it was... So basically a way to kill off the underground. Totally. And enslave African Americans to dope and get them, you know, ready for prison. Um, Lenny Bruce had a really great routine on that. Oh, wow. Where, like, everyone in the country has kicked heroin, and there's an FBI guy trying to get a junkie to restart. Like, please? He's like, no, no, I don't like it anymore. Like, oh, come on. He's like, no, no, I don't want to do it anymore. Like, please? He went, no. (laughs) I quit. Wow. But um, by 84, I, I had met so many homeless kids so many guys who had just gotten out of prison and they don't know what they're doing, so they're hanging, hanging out in the parking lot with Black Flag all afternoon. So many lifer hobos, you know, with the push carts and, you know, they're living it. And they would just, you know, kind of all hang out in the Black Flag gig parking lot, wherever, you know, awful den we're going to be rotting in that night. <laughs> um, you know, you meet the guy with a swastika tattoo on his neck and, wow. like, what's your... What's your deal? Like, what's that about? You know, I got him inside, man. You just got to stay alive. Like, okay. But you have like eight swastikas tattooed on you. Like, what What the hell? And Do you remember that conversation? Like, do you remember what that conversation was like? I had multiple conversations. Yeah. I used to debate those guys. I still have the white power newspapers those guys used to hand out. Oh, wow. I used to stand in front of, because they used, they used to come to our gigs to recruit. Wow. And I'd get in these loud debate so like half the venues kids are you know lurking outside watching me having this debate with these like you know grinning suspender wearing skinheads mm. and they'd come into the show that night seek heiling and that was that was 83 to 86 jesus those, those boneheads showed up almost every day wow and like south of north carolina <laughs> every day i mean Everybody, every singer in a punk rock band had to learn to stop the show. Yeah. All right, you guys got to leave. Give them your five dollars back. You got to go. You don't in, unless you go. We're not playing another song. You have to do all kinds of things. That was probably a skill set you weren't expecting to have to develop when you no, got when you I, got I into. I think I had to become peacemaker, mm. um, like that. Do you like, remember? Okay. Do you remember the first time that happened when you were on stage? No, but you know, I, I remember. Some of the more relevant ones, like Lollapalooza, Orlando, Florida, where it's like 25,000 kids, and you see like 30 skinheads in a, in a tornado just punching people. And like, okay. And like, you know, at this point, I'm really, it's the 90s. Am I still doing this? Because I saw them hammering this black kid with glasses. So I saw the glasses come off. Mm. And I stopped the show. I went, okay. And like, you know, there's thousands of young people. I go, okay, you see those people right there. No, no, to the left of the guy with the mohawk, those people, you know, near the water tower. I mean, it's like this football field of people. Right. I've never had addressed an audience that big on the topic. It's more so, like, Yeah, so what did you say? I said, okay, this stops right now. You all got to go. You got to go. And I said, so we're going to wait for security because you guys are out of here. I, yeah. I, I just stopped it. I said, we're, just stop. And so, you know, you, you got to swap this stuff down, you know, as best you can, whenever you can. You got to be real careful. Yeah. Well, I take a lot of inspiration from you and in, in your, you really are someone who leads by example. Thank you. Which is, for a lot of people, a lot easier said than done, but you well, It's the only way it. I want to lead. Yeah. And, and it's something you work at. 
Yeah. Like, you know, in one great interview of Iggy Pops, his interview should never be missed. Some guy said, so you, you still have a lot of rage. And Iggy said, yeah, I work at it. Yeah. Man, that, it, that's like, that hit me like a bus. So cool. <laughs> and I was like, wow, okay. Because, you know, I have a lot of it in me just yeah. because of how I'm wired and what I've seen. But oh, I'm gonna... that idea of working at it, I'm yeah. like, man, okay. Because, you know, age and money can soften a person up. And I've got both. And you got to really, you got to really stay sharp because mm. you can take way easier ways out. And, uh, you know, when everything pops and clicks when you stand up, you have to start going, okay, well, I'm, I still got to do what I got to do, but it's just going to hurt more. And it's going to take longer because I'm slower. Yeah. And I'm going to have to ask some 17-year-old directions. <laughs> so, right. That's, that's to bring a lot of humility. Well, and to that point, you know, one of the ways to me that you do lead by example and, and continue to have this pursuit of a broad perspective is, is through your traveling. Well, yeah. That, that, that's a, for me, it's political. Yeah. It's why I went to Antarctica. And that doesn't sound political, but I went there and lived with a ship full of scientists for a couple of weeks from Ushuaia to the edge of the Antarctic Peninsula to get the hardcore, unfiltered science on global climate change and like what is happening to the South Pole. Yeah, what did you what did you come back with? Oh, it's harsh. I mean, anything you're seeing on CNN is like a, a teaspoon into eight gallons of water, you know, watered down. Like the raw feed is just, it's so sad. And when you see it, you know, and it's a special tour you take. It's a small boat. It's not a cheap trip, but it's like hours of lectures a day. It's a tour for those who really want to know. And I'm there with my steno pad taking notes, asking the scientists. And, you know, yeah. after the, the thing is over, you know, like, hey, stay behind and <laughs> ask questions. Everyone leaves except for me. <laughs> I love it. And I'm I there with it. Bob, the geologist, just wearing him out on, you know, catabatic winds and sea ice. <laughs> right. And, like, they'll show you, like, this jumpstart footage of, like, an iceberg, you know, for the last 20 years. And you, you go, wow, it's turning into an ice cube right in front of you. And um, the penguins were the big tell. I was standing with Bob one day amidst a bunch of rutting, crapping, screeching Gentoo penguins. And so he goes, okay, you see these Gentoo? Like, how can you not? They're, like, nipping your boots, like, hoping your food and moving on. And he said, these are, are warm-weather breeders. This used to be a Delhi penguin territory, a Delhi or cold-weather penguins. He said, the Adelie have moved south, where it's colder, and they're breeding in places they've never even been before because the cold weather triggers their clock to breed. So I said, so the Adelie have moved south, and the Gentoo are now in the, where the Adelie used to be because now it's, it's even too hot where they were. He said, exactly. Everything's moving south because it's getting warmer. So I said, so... You don't really need the science. The penguins who have no skin in the game, the penguins are showing you that things are getting warmer. He said, bingo. And I said, wow, that's a huge tell. He said, you, you go sell that on CNN. Mm. And, and that's, but when you're there, it's, it's brutal. And when you go to like South American countries and do the eco tours there, like you know, live on the Napo River and watch the deforestation, and meanwhile, hang out with the botanists and the scientists and take the jungle walks and go, and okay, one tree, eight species of ants, 50,000 species of mold, and the lizards are, go from the first 10 feet of this tree, then it gets taken over by these spiders, and then this tree grows on this tree because the birds crapped and the, the seed dropped on the branch. When it falls over, the sunlight will perforate the canopy, and a different tree will grow in its place, and that's... That's a codependent ecosystem that's been growing perfectly until we showed up. Mm. And you learn all this stuff. And so you're living with, you know, where a million eyes stare at you, monkeys stare at you, birds check you out. And at night, you know, all these different nocturnal creatures, but everything's looking back at you when you look at them with your headlamp on. Mm. Makes you feel small, right? Oh, just small and so insignificant. Yeah. Because all these animals, are, they're so much more beautiful than you. Yeah. And, and they have an innate morality that just craps all over you on your best day. Yeah. I was just in Guatemala. Have you ever been to Guatemala? Sure. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I was in uh, Tikal in the northern part. Um, mm -hmm. Have you been there? No. 
Yeah, it's awesome. But we, we basically did a sunrise hike, and we were sitting on one of the Mayan pyramids and looking out over the canopy and seeing the city in the in the distance and these howler monkeys who are, I believe, the second loudest land animals in in the world. Yep. Um, you know, they're just you like yelling and they're they're climbing the trees and it was just it was surreal and it was magical. Yeah, and, that, and that's what you get when you travel, and that's what you you want to be a, a a one who preserves. Mm. Like you, you see that and you go, okay, as a conscientious person, I, I need to help keep all these critters alive. Yeah. So what can I do? Like, give me the right pamphlet. Like, I want, I'm in. Like, let me know. Yeah. And I, I do my best, like, from the stage. You know, get a passport, get out there, see stuff, or here's what I saw when I was there. Here's my photo book. Here's my slideshow. Here's, you know, me and all these places I'm trying to raise awareness. That's that's what I'm trying to do, and that's what punk rock instructs me to do. That's, you know, my version of standing up and bringing truth to power. Do you see your job as a performer being different during this administration? Um, I don't know if I see my job being different. I just see more opportunity to do stuff with my position, where when I talk, people do listen. And so I seek to never abuse it and never misuse it. So if, if, if they come into the venue hungry and I'm the guy who's slinging the hash, I must sling the highest nutritional quality hash possible because I can truly be an asset. Not like the big know-it-all, because I'm just a high school graduate. But I can be an asset. And that's what I see as my, one of my jobs, is to inform from experience. And so I travel all over the world, like all over, every continent, and come back with stories from when my feet were on the ground or in the snow, in the case of Antarctica, um, and go, look, when I was in Afghanistan, here's what I saw. And when I talked to this guy in Pyongyang, this is what he told me. Mm. And, and so that's what I see my job as. So I never thought I was an entertainer, but as an older adult now, I see that I can be very helpful, and I can not necessarily teach, because, you know, what do I know that you don't know? But I can definitely add perspective. Yeah. And, and, and that's not trying to be, uh, you, without being uh, disingenuous or looking down on someone, you can augment, and you can just go, look, you know what you know, and that's cool. Here's some extra stuff to spice up what you know and maybe see that you can look at it from a few different angles. Mm-hmm. Well, they already have the meal. I'm the paprika that makes the thing just <laughs> jump up. Well, I think you, I mean, you highlight the humanity that you, that you see around the world. You capture it in photograph, and then you, you, know, you bring, it, bring it back. Yeah, and, and I bring share. back the, the human stories because I'm just fascinated by how humans voulez-vous. Yeah, and the mechanics of cities and the politics of cities because every city has a tough neighborhood. Oh yeah, you know. So I'd go to places like Bangladesh, yeah, and take photos and ask questions and and play with the kids and you know the kids love laughing at the tattoos and I always say, oh, the Reagan era, and they don't get the joke. But, right. <laughs> I mean, there's a photo in the slideshow of men um, repurposing syringes. Yeah, where they're where they're with wire cutters with no protection. They're chopping the hypodermic part off the syringe. And the, the message from that, which I tell people, the audience, I go, the, the lesson from this photo is that people all over the world live at risk their entire lives with not only food and water insecurity, but just their daily livelihood exposes them. Like, you would never let your kid get near a needle. And this is these guys going through a basket of needles and there's no way it's their first day doing this i mean it's in the, their manufacturing risk they live at risk by just living and this is kind of that cruelty the backhand of humanity where you're like really you're going to treat people so roughly that now they're doing it to themselves and and that's what humans do we're so far up on the food chain we're the apex predator and the thing we predate upon the most, besides the earth, is other people. I mean, your biggest enemy on this planet is, is, is humans. Yeah. Your, uh, one line that in, in one of your L.A. Weekly articles that I 
made a note of is our history is splattered in blood and steeped in unrestrained hostility toward all living creatures. Yeah. That really Yeah, cuz we don't spare anybody yeah. uh, anything. Anything breathing, you know, we're after it. Yeah. Do you know the um do you know the playwright Lynn Nottage? Have you heard of her? No. You should check her out. She wrote the she wrote two really great plays in the last couple of years. One's called Sweat and one's called Ruined. Ruined takes place in the Congo and she actually went there to interview women who had wow. been who had experienced violence and sexual trauma. Yeah, no one's having a good day in the Congo. No. So yeah, Lynn Nodge and then her her most recent one, they actually both of these plays won uh, Pulitzer Prizes and the the newer one is Sweat which came out right after the election. So she'd been working on it for years. Oh wow, I better check her out. Yeah, she's amazing. And she basically went to Reading, Pennsylvania, one of the poorest cities in the country. Oh, to, I've done shows there. It's tough. Yeah, to interview people in this play without giving too much away really entangles race and gender and class issues in a very humane way that I think would, would you would be interested in uh, in checking out. But the reason I bring her up, she has this great quote that I read um, that I've kind of kept really close close by, and uh, it reminds me so much of, of a lot of the work that you do. She says, replace judgment with curiosity. Wow. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. Because a lot of the the way the reason people are incurious is because they they do judge and they do say, well, you know, those people just scratch in the dirt all day. Right. Inherent biases. Yeah. And also just, you know, ignorance is, you know, it's fantastic. It just really yeah. works. And that's where, you know, travel is kind of like the, you know, the, the death knell of ignorance, you know. Yeah. And so if you travel to the right places and you find the right people to get you in the right places, um, you will get this story and these lessons kind of kicked into the front of your brain pan to where not even you can get them out again. Mm. Yeah. I'd love to shift and talk about music, Henry. I know that you yeah. listen to all different kinds of music and you really try to listen to as much music as you possibly can from all over. And, you know, you really use that as an opportunity to learn about different parts of the world, which I also, you know, try to do. Well, there's good music anywhere you go. And there's, you know, there's great pop music in countries. Totally. The best pop music for me is Southeast Asian pop music. Hell yeah. You know, Cambodian, uh, Vietnamese, uh, Thai pop music is just, you know, sublime. Yeah. And Cambodian, sadly, it came with a price. All those people were like some of the first people to get cut down by the Khmer Rouge because they were the money elite. They were famous. They made records. They had to go. But there's no Cambodian music compilations you should be missing. Cool. And my favorite one hit vinyl on sublime frequencies in 2016. It's called the Khmer Cassette Collection. Okay, I'll look That one is a run, do not walk to. And it'll turn you on to the Cambodian rock series and all the different Cambodian music compilation CDs. Amazing. And that, that music... Like acid guitar, mouth harp, and girl, you know, um, Phil Spector vocals. Girl group, huh? yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's because so many diplomats and vets left their 45s behind. Wow. And, and these people just kind of heard everything and threw it all into one song. You, you'll see. Yeah. <laughs> music from Mars. It is so cool. So cool. And well, all those people died. A lot of them were just executed day one. Yeah. Well, I mean, in... You know, along those lines, music is this great lens through which we can view and, and, you know, evaluate history and, you know, the context in which music and art is made tells us so much if we want to, if we want to pay attention yeah, and listen. Yeah, and also it's a great wheel greaser. Like, if you go into the market anywhere, you should, guess where all the excitement is. Yeah. Um, find the music kiosk and get into a conversation with a guy about music. And I bought CDRs and cassettes from here to... Of Bangladesh. Yeah. I buy local music by the ton when I'm in these places. <laughs> yeah. I get a lot of CDRs and Amazing. video DVDs. Or, you know, it's all bootleg. Right, right. With, this, with the, uh, the colored Xerox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you're getting the local stuff. It's amazing. And, and it is amazing. And it's cool to support the local music ecosystem. And you get these, you know, cool mix CDs. I was buying mix CDs in, in Saudi Arabia. And it's, it's how you can hear kind of what young people are digging in Saudi Arabia, legally or illegally, because of Sharia law. But, you know, I, I do my best to connect with any country's music culture. That's why my record collection is so big, because, you know, I'm a hummingbird. I'm, I'm going from flower to flower. You, you write in one of your L.A. Weekly articles that some of the greatest examples of, of music are, you call them blood diamonds, which I thought was such a 
spot on powerful description of of, of music and it's in the, the socio-political weight of so much music made throughout history and all over the world yeah it uh, came with you yeah know? yeah when did you first kind of discover that the socio-political weight of of music through my mom um listening to Marion Makiba and yeah. her 67 album Pata Pata, which my mom bought like week of release. Yeah. We, my mom went to the record store like three nights a week. I mean, my mom was, I was raised with pitch perfect music because of my mom. Like her taste is impeccable. Yeah. And my mom, I had a little record player in my room, but mostly it was DJ Iris and, um, you know, Stravinsky, Bartok, uh, Dylan, both Guthrie's, Coltrane, um, a lot of miles, a whole lot of miles. Because uh, she used to go see those guys play together and separately. And so she was in touch with a lot of different kind of music. And she turned me on to African music uh, like via Miriam Makiba, which made me curious. But the irony of the song Pata Pata was only revealed to me. And one of the reasons why I probably characterized that Bloody Diamond thing yeah. was... There's a lyric in the song Pata Pata. She says, Pata Pata is the, is the dance we do down Johannesburg way. And everyone starts to move when Pata Pata starts to play. Pata Pata is the name of the dance we do down Johannesburg way. And everybody starts to move as soon as Pata Pata... And she goes back into the, the amazing chorus. When she sang that song... She had been exiled from South Africa for standing up to apartheid. Mm. And so she sang that song as a South African exile. Wow. Singing about what it's like to be in South Africa when Pata Pata is playing. And the irony of that could not be lost upon her. Yeah. Are you kidding? So she was really, Makeba was really an important kind of, light along the way for you in kind of realizing context. Yeah, and, and and I knew that my mom told me that she she was kind of a political person. My mom never told me about Fela. Punk rock brought me to Fela. But my mom played me Bob Marley and she explained how music can be political and you know, and Dylan of course. And you know, my mom went to every Vietnam War protest and dragged me along to the ones where, you know, rocks weren't being thrown. Mm. And so I sat in some park in D.C. somewhere and sang Michael Row Your Boat Ashore with Pete Seeger and thousands of other people as people hand around large bottles of Gallo wine in paper cups. Um, yeah. And so I understood music as protest, as a vehicle to mobilize people. Like I said, you know, uh, at the beginning of this conversation, I, I never thought it was an end to war. But can it get a bunch of people in one place? Certainly. Um, but music as a, as, as a way to, to bring truth to power, I mean, it's always been there, but it's in Africa, you know, it, it's, it's really a thing. Like, there's a guy you should look up named Thomas Mapfumo, M-A-P-F-U-M-O. Cool. He's kind of Fela-esque. And... Um, he had a band called the Hallelujah Chicken Run Band. And there's a, a, a song of his called Endringe. And it's basically the Mapfumo groove. I mean, he has a, a pocket he hits. And it's never more eloquently put forth than on that song. It's a beautiful melody. Cool. So Mapfumo was another guy who has risked his life for years bringing truth to power. And a lot of times, it's in a lot of communities, it's only the musicians who could do it. And um, I don't know where Chuck got it from, but Chuck D, he, he said something really amazing. He, he said, you know, where the, the blues and gospel comes from is, is the only way for a slave to raise their voice. Because mm. you can't say, I don't want to feel like working today. And you can't say no. And you can't yell unless it's a field holler. And you can't protest unless there's a melody. Oh, my master beats me, and everyone gets... That's why there's call-and-response vocals, because everyone cutting cotton that day wants to sing. So, da-da-da-da-da, let your hammer ring, and everyone gets to be the chorus. It's the only way to yell at the top of your lungs. And, and suck said that in an interview, and he goes, and that's why you're hearing all that volume. I said, 
damn. Like that's just that blew my mind. And um, Paige Hamilton from from um, uh, Helmet. He is one of the smarter guys you'll ever meet. We spent a good part of '94 touring together. He said, you know, what's jazz to you? I said, yeah, I, I love it. He said, it, it's it's civil rights. I go, how do you figure? He goes, like, look at it. You know, these, these cool-looking African-American guys with good-looking suits putting on sunglasses, Miles turning his back to an all-white audience, you know, inv- inventing bop speak so that, you know, the, the O-Fay crackers couldn't understand. He goes, what else is it? I'm like, wow. He said, these guys were pissed off. That's why they play so fast. That's why their tie-knots were so small. And I'm like, God, I never... And I'll, I'll never listen to any of that music the same way again. I, he was right, of course. Yeah. But, um... Whew. Yeah, it's hard like, not to, you know, I'm so deep into Al- Albert Eiler and Dewey Redmond and Pharaoh Saunders, D- Dolphy, Sam Rivers, Mingus, all that stuff. Yeah, that's all um, the good stuff. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's... You can't really ignore that fact, you know? Right, you know, Archie Shipp, if you ever need a reminder, he's yeah. the angriest man in jazz. Yeah. And, you know, you know, like Duke Ellington, there's a great book about Ellington, which is worth reading. It's called Beyond Category, I think, cool. about the life of Ellington, which is just fascinating. Because Ellington would go into, like, Chicago and sell out a ballroom, you know, three nights, sold out, a bunch of white people, you know, digging every moment of it. Him and his band can't sleep in town because they're black. There's no hotels where they have a bed for a black guy. Meanwhile, he has sold 9,000 tickets in three days. And his band are impeccably dressed. And they're just like, they're Duke Ellington and his amazing band. But they can't sleep in town. We can play in front of you, but we can't sleep down the street from you. And so from learning about jazz, I started seeing just how pervasive racism was. Mm. And you learn about racism by coming into it from a different door in the house of it. Yes. You know, and that's where music is political. It, it is. You know, there, it is civil rights, and there's more punk rock in Charlie Parker than in, you know, 20 Johnny Rottens, and I'm a fan of both. But I'm just saying, talk about guys who took so much crap and yet were beautiful and genius anyway. Yeah. You had a revelation listening to John Coltrane's Live at the Village Vanguard, yeah? I did. Can you can we, uh, can we talk about that? Sure. What kind of led to that and, and sort of the what the revelation was for you? Yeah, I mean, I was raised on jazz music because of my mom. Good stuff, too. Monk, Mingus, Miles, Coltrane. And I liked it, but I just didn't have a, a sense of it. Like, that's my favorite Miles record. I just, I don't know, Sketches of Spain was played until, you know, I, my face fell off. And um, my mom wore out a copy of Birth of the Cool. That's why she had two copies. She showed wow. me once, and she goes, that's why we have two copies. We'll do, do you still have her vinyl? I have some of her Coltrane vinyl, yeah, she gave so it to cool. me. So cool. I mean, she has a promo copy of Love Supreme. <laughs> and I was going through her records one day as a young adult. I'm like, damn, Iris, like, <laughs> you're badass. And I pulled out her, her beautiful, ancient, you know, big, glossy, gatefold, laminated cover. Yeah. Uh, you know, 2,000-gram <laughs> vinyl <laughs> copy of a Love Supreme, like a stop sign with a spindle hole, those old vinyl records. And she says, oh, you can have that. Just take it. I'm like, all right. I yeah. It. So I was very well aware of jazz music. And I was kind of more tenderized and softened in 83 by Mike Watt, who turned me on to Albert Eiler, and Raymond Pettibone, who turned me on to, I think, Ornette and Jimmy Jeffrey. And so I was kind of getting more tenderized to more of the avant, you know, Archie Shep, more distant Coltrane this aspects of music. A girl I was kind of dating now and then here and there turned me on to Sun Ra. Yeah. And those records really kind of blew me out. You know, just I was like, oh, wow, okay. I'm kind of now ready. You know, I'm, I'm teed up and I'm ready to get knocked across the fairway. Like, I'm now open to hear the, the, the rest of it, like the, the 700 records I need. And so I, I had some money. Uh, I was around Lollapalooza era, so I was getting paid, and I had, you know, some liquid money. I could buy some records, which is what I did with liquid money. And I 
bought a few Coltrane CDs, because that was the, the raging thing in those days, buy a CD. And I was alone in my little room, in my little place in Venice, and I was listening to uh, Coltrane live, and suddenly it was one of the most profound things I've ever has ever happened to me as a listener. It's like the cosmos opened, the tumblers all aligned, and almost I almost had a visual of stars lining up, and where everything that was kind of like a galaxy all a pink. And I, I I almost said it out loud. I went, "Oh, John Coltrane is the greatest musician. Jazz is the greatest music ever conceived." humanity's greatest achievement and America's greatest export item, which I came up with later. But, <laughs> and I said that in front of uh, Herbie Hancock, and he nodded and smiled at me and said that he told me I was right about that. Yeah. So, um, and I had this massive epiphany, like, you know, that hit me like punk rock hit me, where I'm like, oh, finally, I have a soundtrack. And Coltrane hit me like that. Like, the guy never blew a false note. Yeah. He's kind of the most sincere, real musician that I'm aware of. And the resulting, you know, aftershocks were I needed to learn everything about jazz. And for like the next 10 years, I became kind of unendurably persistent. Did listening to that music inspire your own music making in, in any way? It inspired me to, to throw out ideas of how music had to be. Yeah. Okay, like if cool. A mu- if a song's going to be... 13 minutes, well then, that's how long it is. It was Electric Miles, and that was Rollins' band, Andrew and Sim. Yeah. They turned me on to uh, Agartha Pangaea uh, on the corner oh, soundtrack yeah. for Jack Johnson. On the corner is one of my favorite Miles. Oh, it, are you kidding? It's yeah. like, insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and we listened to Electric Miles for hours at a time. Water Babies, all that stuff. Yeah. And then from that, I got into Bitches Brew in a silent way. And that's when I looked at my mom's record collection differently as a semi-informed adult. And I said, Iris, where's In a Silent Way, Bitches Brew? She said, oh, hon, Miles lost me. You know, I just, you know, he, when he went for the Wawa pedal and all of that, I, I just no longer understood Miles. Yeah. And he's kind of legendary for people getting on the bus and getting off the bus. Right. And he never, never cared what you thought of his music. And um, he said to an interviewer once famously, he said, I, I, I stopped playing my funny Valentine. He said, why? He said, I, I like playing it too much. Wow. And he would just you know, move on. Yeah. You know, he would just go. And um, it's that bravery and integrity of like, you know, 64, 65 era Coltrane and on. It was that freedom and that fearlessness that influenced me. Super cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Henry, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate the time and, uh, you you know, appreciate the inspiration. Well, cool, man. Thanks for talking. So I'll, I'll see you down the road. Yes, I hope so. You got it. See Enjoy ya. the rest of your day. Bye. <laughs> A big thank you to Henry for his time and interest in this project. Anything that was referenced throughout our conversation, any books or music, all of that is cited in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please do that. And if you can rate it, review it, and share it, that would be amazing. That really helps me reach more folks and get the word out about Same Wavelength. Make sure you're following the podcast on social media, on Instagram and Facebook at Same Wavelength Podcast, and on Twitter, Same Wave Pod. This conversation was edited for brevity and clarity, though I made a sincere effort to retain Henry's words and ideas in their most honest form. The theme music that you're hearing right now and that you heard at the beginning of this episode is an instrumental version of a song by my band Bunk called Turn the World Around. Thanks to my bandmates Brett and Dave for being cool with me using this song for the podcast. On the next episode of Same Wavelength, poet Andrea Gibson. I heard somebody say years ago that art has two responsibilities. One is to tell the truth and the other is to create hope. And I think of that every time I'm writing. And sometimes lately when I'm writing, I think, where is the hope in this piece? Because it will just feel like so much darkness. And I think that the hope comes from what people who hear a piece of art might might do with it afterwards. And I also think in, in this current administration, <laughs> 
everything is a lie, that um, the process of, you know, just telling the truth becomes a hopeful act in itself. I'm Michael Sokol. Thank you so much for listening to Same Wavelength. Be good to yourself and be good to those around you. Somewhere in my 40s, I abandoned literature and fiction as I started reading nonfiction and history. I think it came with uh, gray hair and AARP, but (laughs) none of this was surprising to me. Uh, Like, I remember when 9-11 happened, everyone was like, what? And I was talking to my manager, and he said, surprise? I went, nope, you? He went, no. Uh, And why? We travel. I spend a good bit of time in the Middle East quite frequently. Um, Like, what, you think think these people aren't going to push back? Are you kidding? Mm. Get some books. Start reading about uh, America and Europe's like quest for oil. If you don't think we've rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, yeah, you know, because America, uh, no matter where you go, we've already been there. You know, pushing a government around, starting a war, supplying a war with all the goodies that a war requires. I mean, that's what we do. That's how we get unfathomably wealthy. Is you know, we sell weapons and weapons delivery systems, right? I mean, you wonder why Iran doesn't trust America? It's not because, oh, they're awful people. Read your history. Operation Ajax. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff we got, we've been into for decades. And not only America, of course, you know, the Brits, you know, we, we both were trying to stick our drinking straws into the Middle East. We still are.